Welcome. I'm glad that you guys are here. My name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors. And if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you out in the lobby. And if this is your very first time here, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Maybe it's your first time in a really long time. Glad that you are here. Eustace Scrub was a nasty little boy. I mean, this guy was a little punk. He was a manipulator. He was selfish, self-centered. He was lazy. He used, to, he used to treat his own friends and his own relatives in horrible ways. He was a bully, but he had his life transformed when he went to Narnia. He hooked up with some kids in Narnia and some Narnians, and they're sailing on a boat in a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and they land on an island, and they're shipwrecked there for a while, and they have to figure out how to get off this island. They're not sure what to do, and so they're working And each day they're trying to repair their ship, they're trying to get some stuff done, they're exploring the island, and Eustace, because he's lazy and selfish, he doesn't want to help at all, and so he wanders off. And when he wanders off, he finds a cave, and he sees this cave from a distance, and out of the cave stumbles a dragon, and the dragon is old, and Eustace can tell that he's sick, and he's frail, and he's in pain. And the dragon stumbles out and he falls on the ground and right there in front of Eustace, the dragon dies and pretty soon just just disappears. Eustace didn't know this, but the dragon used to be a human. He's a selfish human. He didn't want to leave his treasure and he didn't want anybody's help and he was trapped in the magic of C.S. Lewis inside of this dragon. And Eustace decides to explore the cave, so he goes into the cave, and he sees this huge treasure, and he's thinking, now I have it made. I'm going to show those people. I'm going to be super rich. And he's kind of looking around at all the treasure, and he finds this gold band, and he puts it on his arm, and he just feels great. And in his own contentment, he falls asleep. But when he wakes up, his world has changed, because now he's the dragon, At first, it's pretty cool because he's got dragon powers. He can breathe fire. He's huge. He's strong. He can fly. And somehow he finds the kids, and somehow they recognize that Eustace is in there. And he starts to help the kids out. And he starts to realize, hey, maybe maybe I need to change. Maybe there's a better way to do life. And he realizes that what he really wants is to be a boy again, but he can't do it. And that's when he has this encounter with Aslan, the lion, the great lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea. And he begins to follow Aslan, and he he goes on this journey, and the lion leads him to a pool. And he tells Eustace, you have to go in the water. But before you do, you've got to undress. He's a dragon. How does he do that? And so Eustace starts to claw at the dragon skin, and he, 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 gets, he gets the skin off. It's kind of like a snake shedding his skin, but right underneath, there's another layer of hard skin. And then he does it again, and he does it again, and he's left exhausted, and nothing's changed. And then the lion says to him, you have to let me do it for you. Later on, he would tell the story of this experience to one of the other kids, and this is what he said. He said, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling that stuff peel away. 
And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and much smaller than I had been before. The lion caught a hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. What would you do to experience true transformation in your life? If you could think about it, where in your life do you want to see change? I mean, maybe it's in a small area, but like a grain of sand that gets irritating in your shoe day after day after day. Maybe you're wondering, am I ever going to be able to change that part of my life? I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and nothing's changed. Maybe for you, you're, you're on this road, you're going down this way, and you realize that you need to just choose a completely different way of doing life. Maybe like used to scrub, you need a complete overhaul. But if you're honest, you're not really sure if you want to go through all of that pain. Where in your life do you want to see transformation? Transformation, when you read the scriptures, it's the overarching theme of the whole Bible. Sometimes we call it redemption, or we might call it salvation. Both of those are words that mean to be rescued, usually at a price. To be redeemed means to be taken from a place of uselessness, a place of brokenness, a place of forgottenness, a place of oppression, and it's to be rescued, and the one that rescues you begins to shape you and clean you and make you new and beautiful and give you a future. It's why in the scriptures it says, if anyone is in Messiah, if anyone is in Jesus the Christ, They are new creation. The old things are gone, and and behold, new things have come to be. Transformation. And we see the theme of transformation right from the beginning of the story. Humanity goes wrong and says, no, thank you, God. And humanity chooses their way of being human, and God pursues them. He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't throw them on the scrap heap. He starts to redeem. He begins to save, which is what salvation means. And when we read the scriptures, especially when we dive into some of these esoteric, old, ancient stories, and we take a couple chapters from the Old Testament part of the Bible, that's what's going on. God is working out this redemptive plan, and we get to look in and zero in on a small portion of it. And that's what he's doing with the ancient Israelites. They wanted transformation. They longed for change. A couple weeks ago, we started this series. Now we're in week three of our series called Keen Me. In fact, if you have your Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel chapter 12. We'll get there in a little while. Or maybe you have the Bible app. There's a, a bunch of stuff on the YouVersion Bible app. You can download that on your phone and press on the menu And then you'll go to events, and then you'll see Lakeside Church there. Make sure you choose the right date. Sometimes there's more than one Lakeside Church there. And there's some resources in there for you and some scripture, some things to think about, some places to take notes. 
But we're in this series called Keen Me, and it's kind of like when you get to the other side of the checkerboard and you say, Keen Me, now I'm more powerful. Or sometimes in our lives we say, Keen Me. I mean, we don't say that, but that's what we're saying, like, I'm the keen, I'm in charge here. And we look at this story from the Old Testament in 1 Samuel, and Pastor Brad and Pastor Ryan did a fantastic job of introducing one of the stars of the story. His name is Saul. And he's the very first king of Israel. The the people asked for a king. They were longing for good leadership. And one of the things that they wanted to see changed in their nation, because they had been on this downward spiral, generation after generation after generation, was the way that power was used. People that had power in ancient Israel usually abused their power in ancient Israel. And they oppressed others. People that didn't have it usually wanted to get it. And when they got it, they usually took it by violence. And people that wanted it but couldn't get it usually ran from it because they didn't trust it. Power is a big deal in our world today. And so we've been looking into the scriptures. How is power used? How does it work? And they introduce Saul to us. And one of the things we find out about Saul is that he had this deep struggle with fear. Fear was like a rudder to his life. He struggled with anger. He struggled with jealousy. He struggled with a lot of things. But at the root of it, I believe it was fear. And we see that theme chapter after chapter after chapter because he kind of goes for a long time. At first, things kind of go really good for Saul. In chapter 11, he does some good stuff. He rescues his people from this great oppression. And then at the end of chapter 11, he does something great. He shows them mercy. There's these people that didn't want Saul to become king, and then he had this other group that wanted him to be king. Saul wins a great victory, and the people that wanted him to be king said to Saul, we should kill the people that didn't want you to be king. I mean, isn't isn't that how the world goes sometimes? Saul says, no, nobody's dying today. And so he begins by showing mercy. It's fantastic. And then in chapter 12, Samuel, who had been the most powerful leader of the tribes of Israel. He was the last judge. He was the last one that rescued them. A judge was sort of this ancient leader, warlord type person who would draw people back to God. He was a prophet and he spoke for God and he kind of gives his farewell speech because he's old and he's leaving. And he has a couple of boys that are knuckleheads. They, they don't operate with justice. They're terrible leaders. And so that's one of the reasons why the people of Israel said, we don't want your sons to take over. Give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations and our king's going to win our battles for us. And so Saul stands up to give this speech. And he tells them, yeah, I, I operated with justice in my leadership with you. But he also tells them their story. And their story is not good. And he goes over and over and over again. You guys keep failing. This is your pattern. This is the way you you operate as a people. I mean, it's not a very encouraging farewell speech. Thanks a lot, Saul. You just tell us everything wrong about ourselves. That's, That's great. But he actually had a reason for it. And his reason for it was that even though, even though this is the way you have lived, God is faithful. And he loves you. Because he loves you with an unconditional, no matter what, kind of love. And if you have the passage, look down in 1 Samuel chapter 12, and this is what he says. 
He says, do not be afraid. There's that theme of fear again. You have done all this evil, yet do not run away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Even with all of their past, God says, you're mine, and I've got plans for you. And maybe that's what you needed to hear this morning. No matter where you're coming from, no matter what your journey's been like, no matter what you've gotten yourself into, no matter what the voices in your head tell you about you, God says, I love you no matter what, and I have plans for you. I believe that God is still pleased to call us his children. And that's a big deal in our world today when we think about the ups and downs of our world and the ups and downs of our own lives. There's a God who says, I love you and don't be afraid. Fear is such a crippling thing. Have you ever thought about it in your own life? Like if you were to make a bullet point, if you go home and you journal this week and just write out like, like old school on a piece of paper, make a bullet point list. How is fear affecting your life? You know, I've, I've heard people teach on Saul for over 30 years. I went to Bible college and Saul was the bad guy. David was the good guy. I went to seminary. Saul's the bad guy and David's the good guy. It's always like Saul's the bad king, David's the good king. But as I was reading through this this week and, and I'm meditating on these chapters and I'm thinking about Saul, I realized that, wow, there's actually, there's actually a lot of Saul in me. He's a tragic figure. Saul was afraid of people, and he was afraid of God at times, and he was afraid of Samuel at times, he was afraid of himself at times, and I realized that there are times in my life where fear is behind everything. Sometimes I fear what people are going to think about me. I fear not being excellent in the things that I do. I fear embarrassment or failure. I fear speaking truth into my friends, into my family, into my colleagues, because what if they reject me? I fear rejection. Fear can shape us in ways that we never want to be shaped. How is fear affecting your life these days? When I was 30 years old, I had, I had a dream job. I mean, life was sweet for a few years in my early 30s. We lived in this beautiful place. I could just drive a little bit, and I'd see the Flatirons in Boulder, Colorado, and I had this amazing group that I worked with, and my, my, my colleagues became best friends, uh, and, and it was just this sweet season. I had these two cute little kids, and they were really easy, and they slept in, and, uh, and, and life was sweet for just a little while. It was fantastic. But you know, life goes on, and life happens. And through the circumstances of life, I began to wonder, I don't know if I want to work for churches anymore. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I mean, I loved coaching, and I thought, man, I, I need to go into coaching. That's what I was going to do originally. And, or maybe I want to go into teaching. I went, out of college, I went to get a teaching credential. I go, maybe I, maybe I should do that. Maybe that's where, where God's nudging me. But I don't know if I want to do this church thing anymore. I think I might be done. And I remember sitting in my room on the computer one day and I was looking at job postings 
And I saw this church in Folsom, California was looking for a pastor of student ministry. And I thought, I think I know those guys. Oh yeah, I know those guys. Because I interviewed with those guys a few years before for a different position. It didn't work out. But man, I, I really like those guys. I wonder if I should send my resume in. And I thought, no, I don't know. And then I asked my wife, Holly, and she says, yeah, send your resume in. What are you talking about? Send it in. And a month went by, and another month, and another month. And God kept on pushing me, and Holly kept on pushing me, and um, I sent my resume in, and we started talking. And after a few months and some visits and some conversation, I remember sitting, I remember sitting in my driveway, my front driveway, because that's where I was barbecuing when I was in Texas. I don't know. So I was in Texas, I'm on a barbecue in the driveway. That's what I do. I love Texas, nothing against Texas, but I'm in, in, in the driveway. Neighbors going by, and I got the phone call. And they said, hey, Sean, we'd like you to join the team out here. And I think about how fear could have made me miss out on the last decade of being with you guys. I mean, what a bummer that would have been. And there's been ups and there's been downs over the last 10 plus years. But sometimes fear can be the driving force of our lives. And we make decisions that affect us and our decisions bleed all over everybody else. How is fear affecting you these days? The story goes on in chapter 13, and Israel is afraid. They're afraid, and they have good reason to, because they're being oppressed by this foreign nation, and they're in poverty. And, and this nation that's oppressing, uh, oppressing them has this amazing technology, and they outnumber Israel by the thousands. And there's this military outpost, and at this outpost, a skirmish breaks out, and Israel has this little victory, and they feel really good about themselves, but they realize that they just poked the bear, and so now battle lines are drawn, and this army comes up to the battle lines, and Israel's there, but Israel's afraid, and Saul's afraid, and he's not sure what to do. And his army starts to desert him. And so he does something that, for their time, in their day, was catastrophic. We're going to see that it's probably, like in our day, we're thinking it's not even that big of a deal. But in their day, it was a huge move. And I want to read what happened and then kind of unpack it for you a little bit. If you look in chapter 13, about halfway through verse 7, it says, Saul remained at Gilgal. And all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he was finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer burnt offerings. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. 
the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, which is an allusion to David, and that's where we're headed in the weeks to come, and appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. You know, we read that and we go, what's the big deal? Come on, Samuel, lighten up a little bit. Yeah, Saul broke a rule. He was not supposed to offer, offer these, these sacrifices. He wasn't supposed to do it. It was, it was only the job of a priest and a Levite. But really, I broke a rule and that's it? Like, I'm on the skids, I'm on the sideline, I'm done with this? When we read the scriptures, one of the things that we have to remind ourselves about again and again is that we're reading an ancient story. And ancient people had ways of seeing the world that are different than our ways of seeing the world. They had a way of seeing God. They, have a way, they had a way of seeing their enemy in one another. They had a way of seeing themselves. They had a way of understanding the cosmos. And it was an ancient way. It wasn't our way. If you think about like modern times right now, just, just in our country right now and all the generations that are alive, I mean, you've got the silent generation, you've got the greatest generation, you have the boomers, you have the Xers, and you have the millennials. By the way, there's a generation between the boomers and millennials. Thank you very much. Woo, woo, Gen X, can I get a... I mean, we always get left out. That's why we're so angry all the time. You know, the baby busters, come on. And anyway, so we have all these generations, right? And when you study generations, you realize that each generation has different ways of seeing the world and seeing God and seeing one another. People will say, well, nothing's ever really changed and people are people. To an extent, absolutely. But when you start to look at how your grandchildren see the world, it's a whole different ballgame. Now imagine a culture thousands of years removed from us on the other side of the globe. This is the ancient Near East. Scripture is one of the five crafts that we have at Lakeside Church. We just believe that when we engage the story of God, that it shapes us, it chisels away at us, it encourages us, it gives us hope, it gives us conviction, all these different things that shape us into something beautiful. God uses his story in our lives. And so as we read it, we want to engage it. We want, to, we want to take off our 21st century lenses and put on some ancient lenses. And one of the things that was true about the ancient Near East and their view of God is that gods were tribal. And the Israelites were no different. Yes, God had begun to lead them and show them how he was different, how he was the God of the universe. But in the culture that they lived in, there were tribal gods. And the way that it worked is that if you appeased your tribal god, he would give you victory over your enemy. And if you didn't appease your tribal god, then he would give no victory for you. And you used to think, well, my god's stronger than that god. Unless they beat you, then you realize that their god was stronger. And so you would go over and then you would worship their god. And this is the ancient Near Eastern view of God. I think Saul was doing one of two things in this passage. And I think that everybody knew it. Either he was treating God sort of like all the other nations would treat their God, which was, I need to put my money in, I need to pull the lever, and I need to get my blessing out. 
I can't go into war unless I pulled the lever because, you know, you're, you're this ancient tribal God and I've got to appease you and I have to be afraid of you. In fact, the whole world was created out of violence and, and, and the gods are violent and, and they don't really care about us and they live up there and they come in here for these wars and stuff like that. And, and if we don't appease them, then the crops won't grow and then and all sorts of things will go bad. And so I just sort of need to appease you, God, before I go into war and do this religious thing. He was either treating God like all the other nations treated their God, which was not the God of Israel. Or Saul did know the story. He actually knew the God of Israel. And he he knew that, that he had rescued them. And he knew that he had shown compassion on them. And he knew that he was shaping them. He understood that he lived in a chapter in the grand narrative of transformation, this redemptive history He knew it all, and he said, no. You have your way, God. I'm going to have my way. I cannot trust in your way. I'm too afraid. So I'm going to take my life in my own hands, and I'm going to do it my way. And it was an all-out rejection of the God of Israel. See, I don't think it was just because Saul broke a rule. I think there was this massive rebelliousness in his heart. And the way that it showed was through rejection. The way that it, was, it showed was, I'm not going to trust in that way. I'm not going to walk in that way. And we get to choose the way that we walk, don't we? God opens his hand and he says, I will never manipulate you into my kingdom. I love you, but I won't control you. I've given you too much dignity to treat you like that. If we were to go into chapter 14, which is really one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible, uh, at some point we should go back and just spend a couple weeks in chapter 14. There's this amazing juxtaposition between Saul and his son Jonathan. Jonathan stands for everything that's faithful and right, and Saul represents everything that's rebellious. And Saul starts to let things bleed out. He starts to oppress his his soldiers. He makes unwise decisions. And at the end of chapter 14, he's ready to murder his own son. At the end of chapter 11, he's showing mercy, but by the time we get a few chapters into the story, he's ready to kill Jonathan. And his own soldiers stand up to him and they say, no, you're not going to kill Jonathan. There's something that they see in him and there's something that they see in Saul. This king that they chose, that they wanted to rescue them from their enemies to be like all the other nations was heading in the wrong direction. And then you get to chapter 15 and Saul does it all over again. And here comes Samuel and he confronts Saul another time. And Samuel says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much, in obe- as much as in obeying God, as, as in obeying the Lord? He says, To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance, and we should listen to this, arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. 
See, these chapters tell the story of the beginning of the end for Saul. Did God love Saul? Absolutely and unconditionally. But if we remember that God's purpose for humankind is to redeem us, to rescue us, that he's got this grand story that he's unfolding, he can't leave Saul in leadership. He wants to work with ancient Israel. He loves them. Messiah is going to come from ancient Israel. The whole world is going to be blessed through Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who would go to the cross and die and rise again. So God, in his plan, has to set Saul aside. I think that Saul wanted his people to thrive. I think he wanted good things to come out of his leadership. I don't think he intentionally went in and said, I'm going to destroy the nation. I just think he chose another way, which was not God's way. And that's what was happening when Jesus came onto the scene. Jesus comes onto the scene, and the people are oppressed, this time by the Romans. And there's chaos. The people are divided. They're in, fra- they're in factions. They're fighting against one another. And Jesus says, there's a better way. In fact, he says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you want to experience transformation in your life, redemption, salvation, it's in me, Jesus says. The early church picked up on this and At one point, Peter stands up in front of thousands of people in Acts chapter 4, and he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Maybe today is the day for you that you come to Jesus for the very first time, and you surrender your life, and you say, Hey, I've been going my way. I'm, I'm a lot like Saul, and I want to choose another way. After Eustace experienced the pool and the transformation, he went back to England. And he found this girl named Jill Pohl, and he brought her to Narnia. And Jill is just as nasty as Eustace used to be, probably worse. She's violent, and she's arrogant, and she doesn't listen to anybody. And her story is in a book called The Silver Chair. And her and Eustace are on the edge of a cliff and they're fighting against one another. And Jill pushes Eustace off the cliff and he's falling to his death. But just in time, Aslan flies in and by his breath saves Eustace and takes him off to a safe place. And then he lands on the edge of the cliff not too far from Jill. Jill's frightened and she's staring at this giant lion and she's thinking, what am I going to do now? But to her relief, he wanders off into the forest and she's left exhausted and thirsty. And her thirst grows and grows and then she hears this stream off in the distance and so she goes to find it. But just as she gets to the stream, she sees the lion and he's like a giant statue and he's not moving and so she waits And she waits, and she waits, and she waits. And then the lion speaks, and he says, 
Are you not thirsty? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, and she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing, she had, kept, she had walked a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as, as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. Jesus said, if anybody is thirsty... Let them come to me and drink. In Jesus is true satisfaction in life. It's true transformation in life. And so maybe for you, you've been on this journey and there's an area of your life that you want to see transformed. Some area of your heart. Jesus says, come to me. And I will give you water that satisfies you. I will change your life. Maybe for you, it's time to jump into the pool like Eustace. It's time for baptism. We do baptism around Lakeside Church a few times a year. And at the end of September, we're going to have another baptism. And I want to invite you because we love to celebrate life-giving grace. It's one of our values here at Lakeside. And it's going to be a party. All of the baptisms are going to be right here in the auditorium. We're going to have the band playing. It's going to be fantastic. If you'd like to be baptized, then I want to encourage you to register for Begin at Lakeside. Begin at Lakeside is one of my favorite things that I do here at, at, at Lakeside Church. We, we talk about baptism, but we talk about much more. Maybe for you, you're on this journey and you're like, I'm trying to figure this whole faith thing out and this God thing and this Christianity thing and, and, and the Bible and how things work and, and, and begin at Lakeside is just dipping your toe into the water. We kind of go over the big story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and we talk about Christianity 101 and we try to answer whatever questions that you might have. Maybe for a year you're thinking, man, I want to go deeper into this stuff. In fact, I'm ready to get plugged into Lakeside in a way that I've never been before. Actually, Begin at Lakeside is our membership class, and we talk about the story of Lakeside, where we started, how we started. We talk about what's most important right now and where, kind of what mountain we're climbing these days and where we hope to head in the future. So Begin at Lakeside is coming soon. I want you to register for that. I'd love to see you there. And maybe for you, today, it's just another step closer in your journey with Jesus. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you that he's the way for you. Would you pray with me this morning? 
Father, thanks for my brothers and sisters here today. Thanks for the worship that we experienced earlier on and for the worship that we experience when we engage the scriptures. God, I pray that we would take this morning, that we would meditate on the things that that we've wrestled with. And Lord, I pray that you would meet us right there, that you would show your power in our lives. And God, that we would take a step of trust towards you. Lord, I believe that that's what Samuel was talking about when he said obedience is better than sacrifice. We're really talking about, Lord, just a, a step of faith and trust towards you, which is way better than cold, useless religion. None of us want that. What we want is a relationship with the living God. And we find that in you, Jesus. Amen.